everyone, it's Caleb. I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today I'm honored to be joined by Daniel Bowman, and we're going to talk with him about his brand new book, On the Spectrum. And one of his uh, passions and expertise is also in storytelling, which is something that I'm just trying to spend a lot more time learning about of how to become a better storyteller and what are what are some of the uh, the themes or what are what are some of the um, the na- I don't know if narratives is the right word, but just learning how to be better at an- analyzing stories and some of the things that we can learn from them. And so, super excited to bring that to you today. If this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, really there's kind of two uh, themes or two ideas that drive us here on the podcast. The one is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And the world seems to be uh, becoming even more of a place to where it's hard to have conversations on topics that uh, maybe for one reason or another are considered uh, political for one reason or, uh, or are just considered controversial. Um, or maybe maybe you're trying to figure things out and they're considered uh, for your tribe that, oh man, that just sounds so uh, conservative or that sounds too uh, restrictive. Or on the other end, it's like, man, that sounds very liberal. And uh, But regardless of whatever the thing is, I think the thing that makes us, uh, I guess the thing that makes us fearful of engaging in those conversations is that, is a fear. And whether that's of uh, being judged by somebody else or whether that's, um, you know, maybe the fear of losing a relationship with somebody, uh, we maybe sometimes choose not to engage in those conversations or we just realize, okay, there's certain things that I can't talk about with some people. And then there's uh, other people who maybe I could have the freedom to talk about anything with. And if you're not in the position to where you feel like there is somebody um who you can talk about those things with, which I've been there. I've been there to where it seemed like there's, you know, not very many people, maybe one or two that that I can have those conversations with. And I know that that's just tough. And so that, that's one of the reasons why we have, why I create the Learner's Corner and why I do that. Um, because that's what podcasts did for me is they helped me give voice and give uh, thought to things that... I didn't even know that I had permission to think about. And so hopefully the Learner's Corner is able to do that for you. And then uh, the other kind of big idea is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from everything and from everything. And what we want to do is create a place to where we can hear from different voices, from people who have different experiences than we do because our experience isn't the only experience and there's many different experiences, whether that uh, be based on gender or race or um, or just, you know, all all of the game and different, different, different personality as well. And today we're going to be learning uh, about that. And that's kind of what this episode is going to fall into, or at least part of the episode. And that's why I'm really excited to have Daniel on the podcast today, because uh, we're talking about uh, neurodiversity and specifically his experience with autism. And, you know, one of the things that is really important to keep in mind, and we talk about this uh, in the podcast as well, is that there is no autistic point of view, as he says. There are many autistic points of views as there are autistic people. And I think that's really important to keep in mind anytime that we're learning from someone and maybe we want to categorize them 
into uh, into something that allows us to understand a group of people better. And even though there there might be some similarities because of you know similar because of similarities in in different people groups, there's also a lot of differences. And so, I think it's partly our responsibility to know that there is nuance and that it doesn't allow us to um, to categorize people and think that we understand people because we know uh, in this case, as we're talking about today, well, I know one autistic person, so I might know what is true of all autistic people. And that is just not the case. And so that's why we have podcast episodes like this. And as I mentioned uh, today, we're also going to talk about storytelling. So let me tell you a little bit about Daniel. And then honestly, I want to re- I want to read a little bit uh, from the back cover of his book, which stood out to me. And then we're going to jump into the conversation with it. So let me tell you a little bit about Daniel. So Daniel Bowman Jr. is an author, poet, and associate professor of English at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. He writes and speaks regularly on neurodiversity, including for the SBC's Facts and Trends website, The Mighty Ruminate Magazine, and at the 2020 Association of Writers and Writing Programs. He is also the editor-in-chief of Relief, a journal of art and faith, which engages in several in-person and online communities addressing neurodiversity and mental health and mentors young people on the spectrum. Also, he is uh, a storytelling expert. We're going to get into that uh, more uh, in my, our conversation. But let me let me read a little bit of what's on the back of the book and kind of the summary of it to set up our conversation. So on the back of the book, it says, nearly everyone knows someone on the autistic autism spectrum whether it's a niece or a nephew, a student in their classroom, a coworker, or a sibling, spouse, or child, one in 54 children has autism, according to the CDC, and autism is reported across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups. Yet most of what people think they know about autism is wrong. And in this book, he, deb- he debunks the myths with realistic yet hope-filled deep dive into the heart, mind, and life of a Christian. And so that's kind of setting the stage a little bit. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Daniel Bowman. Well, Dan, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, you've released this brand new book called On the Spectrum. And anytime that anyone releases, you know, a book or a work of art or anything like that, I just love hearing the story or the series of events that led someone to go, okay, I think I want to put this out into the world for to help other people or inspire other people. And so I would just love to hear your story. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I uh, didn't really intend to write nonfiction. I started out as a poet, and I published a book of poems a couple of years ago. Uh, and then um, I've written a, a bunch of fiction, actually. <laughs> but I had a chance to, um, when I was going through the uh, diagnostic process and everything, which I mentioned toward the beginning of the book, um, I knew that I had a chance to start writing about autism uh, and kind of reframing my life story through that lens. Um, and as soon as I did that, 
I, you know, I had a short uh, series of essays and then I started looking at those and thinking, I started out with four little short essays and I started thinking, um, huh, I wonder if I could put these together with some more pieces on similar topics. What does it look like to be autistic in the church or in higher ed? And then some of my other pet projects like the relationship between Christian faith and the arts and things like that. Could I put that all together in a book that would make any kind of sense? And so uh, finally, I had an opportunity to um, through Brazos, which was has been a really wonderful thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what have you found to be maybe the biggest difference between, you know, moving from writing fiction to nonfiction? Um, you know, I, I, I never had any training in nonfiction other than that I, I read as much of it as I can. But my my um, my feeling for nonfiction was always that it's only going to be as good as the writer is vulnerable. And so, um, you know, whenever I tried to use restraint and hold back a little bit, I recognized the writing was not going to be as compelling unless I just put everything on the table. Now, that's a really tough ask to make of anybody. <laughs> Uh, and I and and people who write nonfiction and write memoirs their whole lives, um, I can't understand that impulse. It's not something that I wanted to. It's something I felt like I had to do. So I think the vulnerability, I can't. Um, while while I I can hopefully craft good sentences and and sort of hide behind that, so to speak, uh, it's not the same as fiction or poetry at all. It's just my life out there on the page. Yeah. Uh, so you were saying you know, for, for nonfiction, vulnerability is pretty key. Is there, is there like a counter thing to that for fiction of like, Hey, this is maybe one or two things that is pretty key when writing fiction. Uh, for me, um, the similarities are, uh, with, with any kind of good, um, prose, I think the similarity is vivid and specific sensory details. Like I think you want to really try to immerse your reader in the world that you're creating, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, the, the, the key to me for fiction writing is character development. And so I guess you can make the argument that it's, it's similar in nonfiction. Um, it's just trickier because you almost have to separate yourself from yourself. You're looking at yourself as a character on the page now and thinking of yourself differently. <laughs> so it's a little bit, it's a little bit tricky. It just feels less comfortable for me than, than fiction writing does. But yeah, I think character and sensory detail are, are really the keys for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the things and it's in, uh, in the subtitle of your book that I just never, or one of the terms that I just hadn't heard a lot about is neurodiversity. Um, and I imagine that's probably true for a lot of people, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, just diversity, but not neurodiversity. Um, would you mind just kind of, you know, teasing that out a little bit of what that, what that is and what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. It's just a, uh, a phrase that, uh, a term, a term that comes to help us um, describe different types of brains. Um, and so, you know, um, a neurodivergent brain can can cover uh, the autistic brain or the ADHD brain or um, a number of other um, conditions. And um, it's just a way to describe the characteristics of our brain wiring in a way that's more positive and less less uh, sort of deficits focused. 
Because once you pathologize and you start saying, well, the autistic brain has deficits and it's weird and it's odd and, um, and all that, then um, there's a lot of stigma attached to it. You know, so if we if we look at um, a neurodiversity model compared with a um, pathology model, we're basically just talking that about two different brains that are equally valid ways of being in the world. They just happen to make you function a little bit differently. Yeah, um, one of one of the the statements that you have in the book that I wanted to make sure that we include pretty early on because I feel like you do such a good job of setting it up in the book is um as you say that there's no autistic point of view. There are as many autistic point of view as there are autistic persons. Yeah. Uh, and I would just love, I just wanted to make that clear because you do such a good job of it. And I would just love any, uh, anything in addition that you would want to add to that. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I mean, I think that probably goes with anything. It's like, uh, there's no, you know, male or female point of view either. There's, there's many, 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 of course. Um, I'll, I'll just give one example. Uh, I was talking about this yesterday with a student, actually. Uh, we were talking about the stereotype of the autistic um, who doesn't express emotions in a way that uh, most people would normally expect. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, with autism, you have some people who are um, hypoempathic. They don't express the emotions in the way that you would expect, whether it's grief or fear or some other things. Um, and so we see that sometimes in popular uh, entertainment and media representations of autistic people. Uh, however, we forget that there are people on the spectrum like myself who are hyper-empathic. Uh, we actually feel things very deeply all the time <laughs> to the point where uh, it's, it's, um, it doesn't feel safe half the time. So, um, you know, those, those two points of view from, from two different autistic people are going to be very, very different. You know, I don't think my way through the world or live my way from the neck up. I kind of feel my way through the world with the, with my heart and gut, you know, so I'm going to have a different perspective on most things. Yeah. Uh, what, what helps you with that? Whenever your feelings are like, they, they kind of are in the driver's seat yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's hard. I, I've worked for many years to try to find balance, basically. Um, a lot of times that leads, for me, that leads me to not be able to see like the bigger picture, to see the the forest for the trees. I can always see the details that are right in front of me, and I can get really, really wrapped up in them, but not see the bigger picture. Um, so, uh, for example, I go to counseling every month. I have for years. And uh, all I do is basically just talk about my week, my month. And I start to recognize the larger patterns that are at play. And so even if I'm having a bad day, if I feel like things are rotten, as soon as I start talking about the last, you know, three to four weeks, it becomes clear to me that things are not rotten, actually. They're probably pretty fine. I'm just in a, in a bad feeling place at that particular moment. So I need to just gain perspective. Uh, and, and I like to do counseling for that, especially. Yeah. Uh, what, are, what are some things that, unless you know, unless you have autism, you just don't know. Um, that's a great question. I think, um, probably the thing that comes up most for me, uh, that people aren't as aware of is, um, a sensory processing, Hmm. um, sensory processing. Uh, I struggle with sensory processing 
Uh, bright, harsh lights can be really tough for me and throw my whole uh, brain out of whack if I'm trying to focus on something else. Um, same with temperature. Uh, if it's too warm for me, I'll be really distracted and have a hard time being able to accomplish anything. Um, same with sounds. If um, if I'm meeting somebody in a coffee shop as opposed to like in my office or something, and there's a lot of ambient noise, sometimes that can uh, be really, really tough for me to be able to focus and, and um, do what I need to do. So I think a lot of people don't think of that uh, sensory processing. Sometimes we even see that with uh, young children on the autism spectrum. If they hear a dog barking really loudly or they hear fireworks on the 4th of July or something, they'll their immediate reaction is to like cover their ears. And sometimes they wear these uh, ear defenders, you know, um, that's a really, really big deal. It's very, very hard to get anything done in school or at work or anything. If you're having, uh, if you have a sensory processing disorder. So to me, that's one thing a lot of people haven't uh, recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, what are, like, I'm thinking about the person who's uh, like, you know, me, I don't have autism, so I don't have to deal with sensory, the sensory overload that you were talking about. Um, what are some things that people like me who, you know, maybe were in charge, you know, you mentioned a church or a house or anything yeah. like that, um, that like, hey, it's these like adjustments or these things that you can, that, that we can do to help create a better environment for people who, you know, have autism. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it, it's so cool to me to have a conversation like this and be asked this question because I think most of the time we're, you know, we go through our lives and I'm in my 40s and, uh, people haven't ever tried or wanted to make an adaptation for me for the most part. So it's, it's great to even be thinking of that. Um, I, I think just, just communicating with people, asking people, um, I have a couple of friends who have gotten so good at this and, and it just makes a, an unbelievable difference in my life. Uh, when I meet up with them, they'll say, is it too loud in here? Or do you, are you comfortable in this seat or should we switch? You want to go sit in that part of the room? Would that be better? Or uh, just stuff like that, and it's it's um because you never know from moment to moment what it's going to be, you know that that sets somebody off if they have a sensory processing disorder. So just being kind of open about it, and also just treating it like, hey, it's not a big deal if we need to make a couple adjustments. Yeah, well, and I think you know you you talking about your interaction with a friend um, from for the person who's in the other seat. I know that some of the things that stops us from asking the questions of we don't want to like we don't want to offend anybody or we don't right. want to or be sensitive. And so that's great. Um, just for you and your friend modeling that as well. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I have a couple of people who've read the book now and, and they're, they're, they've become sensitive to things and, um, it's just really cool. I just really appreciate it. I never thought that I'd be met halfway on any of these things. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, can you just talk, can you talk about that dynamic of what you were saying of like, just the thing of, um, like, expecting people not to make adjustments for you yeah and like what that's like and deal because i mean that's not uh like that's not abnormal for yeah you know it's really tough with so many um so-called hidden disabilities because you can pass so to speak as as you know functioning and yet you may be um uh there may be a battle going on inside you that's making mm-hmm. things really really tough um, and, and you know, um, adaptations are, um, more, um, I don't know that they're more available or even more common, but let's say with physical disabilities, uh, things that people see, um, they're at least 
uh, kind of in the in the minds of people. If you see somebody who's a wheelchair user, for example, and you know that your building doesn't have a ramp, you know there's an issue there, something that really needs to be accounted for. Um, with hidden disabilities uh, like autism, you just may not know it. Uh, but when it comes into your purview, um, you know, I don't. I think we, we all have a lot to learn still, and so I try to cut people a lot of a lot of slack. And it's really one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I want to gently instruct people on how to. It's not just about helping autistic people, but about making a way for you know um, for your neighbor um, to make their life a little bit better if it's if it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, which is very essential for those of us who follow Jesus as well. I, yeah. think, he's, I think he said something about that. And that's that's the argument I've been trying to make since day one, is I want to say, yes, this is about autism, but it could be about other things. Um, and, and the deal is not so much about, you know, becoming an expert on autism or, or um, uh, making adjustments to the way that you deal with people every second and no need to panic over that stuff. It's just about, having a posture of humility in the face of all the different people in the world and say, look, um, everybody has different needs. And if I'm going to love my neighbor, I need to know their story so that I can figure out the way that they need to be loved and would appreciate it. And then that, then we go from there. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the, the myths or the misconceptions about autism that you would say are just out there just because, you know, we're ignorant. We just don't know. Yeah. Well, I think, um, one thing I've I've um, thought about a bit and reflected on recently is like media portrayals because I think um, I don't know how it is in other places, but especially in the U.S., uh, what we see on our televisions and on movie screens really you know makes an impression on us. So when you see um, to go all the way back to the '80s, when you see uh, Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. You know, for, for an entire generation, that was perhaps the only autistic character they ever saw. And there's a problem with that. And, and that's the, the um, what Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie calls the danger of the single story. Um, it's just one story of, of uh, autism. And so and, and it's a story of a of a savant, an autistic savant. And so for I think for years, if you just knew what you could from popular culture, you would only know kind of the Rain Man dynamic and think that an autistic person is probably really, really good with numbers and, you know, could go to Vegas and cheat their way into wealth or something. Uh, when in fact, none of, savantism itself is extremely rare. Yes, it makes a good Hollywood movie. And so that's why it was successful. But it's not, you know, it's not something that's normally part of the autistic experience at all. And so I guess that's probably one of the one of the myths. The, the other one that I might point out is because so much research was always done on white males, um, it would seem that autism is something that affects men and, um, and white people when in fact it cuts across every uh, race and ethnic group. And, um, and I know many uh, wonderful women on the autism spectrum as well they have a much tougher time getting diagnosed because all the criteria was geared toward men. So yeah, those are a few things that people sometimes don't realize. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to, you know, you were mentioning uh, the portrayal that, that Dustin Hoffman had on the, on the flip side, what are some, you know, uh, some portrayals of media that you would say, yeah, they, you know, and obviously we want to say, uh, you know, the no, it's not a, 
you know, there isn't one particular thing that represents all people who have autism. Right. Um, but what are some, you know, good portrayals of in media that you've seen? Yeah, um, thanks for asking that. Just this past year, so I um, am the faculty advisor to a group called SEND on my campus, which stands for Students for Education on Neurodiversity. And it's mostly autistic students, but there are also a lot of others who come just to learn about it and support uh, their friends and things like that. Um, we watched the uh, HBO movie of The Life of Temple Grandin, starring Claire Danes as Temple Grandin. I went in there very skeptical. I didn't think I was going to like it. Although I'm a big Claire Danes fan, I didn't think I was going to like it. I'd read Temple Grandin's a number of her books. Um, I find her interesting, but I just wasn't sure how Hollywood was going to handle things again. And I watched it with the Send group, and I carefully kind of reserved judgment um, through most of it because I wanted to hear what they thought. But I was secretly loving it. I thought it was fantastic. And then we got done with the movie, and everybody agreed. They're like, that just feels like me. I feel like affirmed, you know, I feel really seen for the first time ever. And so for me, that's a great example. Whereas other autistic people don't like that movie. Um, the second one would be there's, there was a show called everything's going to be okay on the Freeform network. Mm -hmm. And it ran for, I, I think there's a second season coming. Um, and it, it was canceled just recently, but it's got two seasons. The interesting thing about that one is there's a, a actress named Kayla Cromer who is autistic and she's playing an autistic character on that show. And I've been told that's the first time that we know of that that's ever happened. So that that's pretty cool. And to be fair, um, her character's real. I don't love that show, but her character's really good and she does a really amazing job on that show. So yeah, there's another example. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is what if, what have you learned about God or what has God taught you through autism? Yeah. Um, one of the things I've been trying to think through a lot lately is um, sort of the metaphor of the body and, and all the various parts. And I talk about that a little bit in the book. We say that a lot in churches and I heard that growing up in church. And yet it seems like we still... Um, are more comfortable with people who think like us and act like us and talk like us. And so if we're really going to be serious about that metaphor, then we have to recognize there, there are autistic people in the church who um, may um, not even be able to worship in the congregation the way that others do some of the time. And we have to save space for them and say, well, it's not that um, it's not that their faith is weaker than ours or something like that. It's that uh, we have to create space to let them be who God created them to be, you know, and I do believe that I have strengths. So even if I can't, um, so we call this sort of the gifts of neurodiversity in the subtitle of the book. Um, if, if I can't go to church and do a service project because I'm overloaded, um, you know, that week, mentally, emotionally exhausted. I take a lot longer to recharge than some people do. I need a lot of alone time and stuff. I, on the other hand, maybe my ministry is something like writing. So I can take that time alone and write. And maybe that book would have an impact or an article I write have an impact on somebody later on. So I could, would consider that a ministry. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the 
things that you have in the back of the book is you have some interviews uh, that people did w- with you and ask some questions. And one of the things yeah. that really stood out um, to me is, you know, you get asked the question, what advice would you give to your younger self? And you said, you know, I would tell myself to be myself, which is, which is something that everybody I think struggles with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the things that have helped you become more comfortable with just being Dan and who God mm-hmm. created you to be? Yeah, I think um, writing the book is actually just super healing for me. I mean, it really was, it was, it was amazing how after the book released, after it came out, I just felt so empowered to not be ashamed of who I am and the way that I have to walk through the world, knowing that it's going to be different, knowing that it's often going to feel like failure. Um, take, for example, executive dysfunction. Um, that's one of the key traits uh, um, of my brain. Is I have a really hard time with time management, with organization, with keeping things straight. I miss a meeting like at least once a month. <laughs> I always am paranoid that somebody's mad at me because I forgot to return an email. I write stuff down. And I try so hard and yet it doesn't always gel. Um, and I was always just too hard on myself for that over the years. And just thinking, well, that must, that the only story I knew about being disorganized was that that people who are disorganized are lazy, they're not trying hard enough, and they're slobs and they need to get their act together. Well, in fact, it's not that simple, you know, it's often not a choice. And so I can work on that and try to improve in those areas, but also just forgive myself and say, you know, what? it's just part of who I am. Um, I'll focus on my strengths, I'll try to improve on my weaknesses and go from there. So just, um, I guess when I say to be myself, I, I mostly mean to not carry around shame for things that aren't my fault. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good point that you make about, especially the, the time management in the organization <laughs> stuff. I was, um, yeah. I was reading another book and they were talking about the idea of, um, of emb- like, you know, embracing your limits and figuring out, uh, the limits that you need to that you need to break through in it. Yeah. And it's, it's just a good point of what you're saying with um, like, you could try to get better at it, but there is a ceiling. Right. For you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and sometimes I get creative and I, and I make adaptations. Um, yeah. Just last week, uh, I, I had a bunch of stuff to do. I edit a magazine and I'm way behind on everything because this was the year that the book came out. And I, little did I know how much work a book release was going to be. It's good work, but it's a lot to do. And so I'm behind on my magazine work, um, an adaptation that would sound so stupid to a lot of people, but is actually very useful and valuable to me was I grabbed a student who had interned with me this summer. And I said, you happen to have a little more time because she was very, um, just very effective with time management organization and stuff like that. It helped me so much this summer. Uh, she actually wrote the discussion guide to the book, which is on my website, um, and we we worked on that all summer. Just having her in my office, I said, if you could come up and just make a list with me. I, I My brain is fried right now. It's the beginning of a new school year. I can't keep anything straight. Way behind on certain things. If I can just process this out loud and you can help me by just making a list uh, and just being here present with me, that would help me so much. And we just did that. And again, it's going to sound very silly to a lot of people. I'm an adult and I shouldn't have to do that. And I'm a university professor and I should be more on top of things. But it's what I have to do. And I'm willing to do that um, humbly, knowing that that's going to make me uh, better. It's going to make the work better. So 
Um, yeah. I wouldn't have known that five, six, eight years ago. And so I'm thankful that I do now. Yeah. Well, I think even even just to your point, we all have things like that. The things to where we just need help yeah. from other yeah. people. And yeah. <laughs> we sometimes we lie to ourselves and say that we don't. <laughs> right, right. Whereas I'm, I'm trying now to just wear this badge with honor and just say, I need help. <laughs> I'm not very yeah. good at a lot of things. And so uh, please support me and, and, and I'll support you in any way that I can. You know? yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of allowing yourself to be uh, in community and even to be dependent on others a lot of times, you know, which is a humility thing, I think. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to uh, talk with you about is with your experience and knowledge and story as well. Um, and I figured it'd just be a fun way to get, get it kicked off by just what's some of your favorite stories that you've just encountered recently or just read through or seen or anything like that? Oh, wow. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, Broad it's, such question. An <laughs> it's such an overwhelming thing. Um, well, let's see. I'm, I'm reading a novel right now that I really, really like because it reminds me a lot of my favorite novels. Um, and it's, it's called um, Raft of Stars by Andy Graff. Uh, who's an Ohio novelist, actually. <clears throat> and it's just a really beautiful book. Um, I like literary fiction, so I read a ton of literary fiction because the idea in literary fiction, as far as I understand it, is um, to privilege character development over plot. So I don't need like a bunch of car chases and fight scenes and stuff like that necessarily. I like that stuff. That's fine. But um, in a good book, I like character development. I want to go really deep into the human psyche. Mm-hmm. And so um, just yesterday, I was talking to somebody about Elizabeth Strout. We were talking about her short story cycle, Olive Kittredge, from a couple years back that won uh, won the Pulitzer. Uh, I love books like that um, that really get deep into what it means to be human. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. Are you a big Marvel fan? At all? Actually, um, <laughs> I have been watching a ton of Marvel. I got into it because my 11-year-old son has been really into it. So the, like the last year or two, uh, we've really dove into that universe. And it's it's been super fun. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things. The character development is what made me think of it um, for yeah. you. Because it's, it's it's easy to get, you know, uh, if, you, if you only see, you know, every movie so in a while, you miss out on the character development because they change so much. Um, right right and i i think the uh yeah the marvel universe does a pretty exceptional job on stuff like that when they go back and do their origin stories for all these characters and everything it's really really fascinating and for me that's where the good stuff is um i i love those scenes where we go uh yeah to people's homes and stuff like that and have a quiet moment before the next big battle scene (laughs) and we learn about who they are what they value what they love what they're what they're actually fighting for when they're fighting you know oh yeah (laughs) yep very much so um you had uh you have this this line in your book which was very intriguing uh to me because i don't think they go um at least on the surface you probably wouldn't think that they're uh they go too well together but you write you know, bad storytelling is bad theology. Uh, I would just love for you to expound on that idea because, as I said, it's not something like that you would hear normally. Yeah, I, I um, you know, working at a Christian college, um, I sometimes encounter uh, so-called Christian fiction or Christian novels and things like that. 
um, which generally speaking, try to take a very, very complex world with very, very complex people with complex histories and simplify them in some way, <laughs> you know? And I think that's the bad theology piece of it. So it's bad storytelling if your characters aren't complex. I mean, I, I think even in a kind of simplistic good versus evil, if we're talking like Marvel Universe stuff, um, the villains have to be compelling, you know, and sympathetic in some ways. And the good guys have to have serious flaws, you know? So you have yeah. to have all that stuff and have, and, and have to make it more realistic and more complex in order to um, mirror what we think is is real and true and capture that sense of uh, I, what we call in creative writing circles verisimilitude, the, the ring of truth about it, the thing that feels like it could actually be happening as you read. Um, simplistic Christian stories where there's just somebody who's behaving badly and not doing well in life and then one day gets saved and then all is well, um, you know, reduces the complexity of what it means to be human. And so I think anybody who's smart is going to read that and be turned off to Christian fiction by saying that doesn't reflect my life very well. My life was a lot more complicated than that. And so there's, to me, the relationship between the bad storytelling and a kind of bad theology of, of how to think about your neighbor. If you simplify them to somebody who's unsaved and that's the box you put them in or the category you put them in or something, then um, you're going to miss out on all the intricate ways that you need to show them love in order to uh, show them who Jesus is. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you're talking about, you know, you make the complex simple and that's a form of bad storytelling. Are there any other bad forms of storytelling that you just tend to see that are out there? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess the other, um, and it goes, I guess it really, it goes along with it. Um, you know, taking really complex things and making them too simple would be, um, genre writing that really is overly formulaic, you know? <laughs> Um, I sometimes ask my students about that. I say, what kind of writer do you want to be? Um, what what do you want to write? What do you want to be known for? And I'll say, um, have you ever been in a Goodwill and looked at the used book section? You, How many romance novels are in that used book section? They're like, oh, yeah, a lot. Yeah, like hundreds. You have to go through a whole couple aisles of them. I say, why are there so many? And why are they so quickly discarded? My guess is I don't read them, so I don't actually know. <laughs> my my guess is that they're they they're just based on a formula. The formula is pretty much the same every time, except you switch the names and the characters maybe a little bit, and then it's a it's a one and done. You read it, and you don't feel the need to reread it because it's not very life giving. It's just formulaic. It probably provides some entertainment, and then you move on to the next one. Um, I don't know. I don't want to spend my years writing if that's all i'm doing is just cranking out formulaic stuff that's going to be forgotten in a couple of weeks i'd rather try really hard to write something that might stand the test of time at least for a couple of years mm -hmm. yeah and at least at least in my life i find myself drawn towards those complex stories in the yeah. in the in the ones that aren't formulaic to the point to where it's like i want to read them again <laughs> yes that's just, that's it and, and books that can, I mean, have been around for hundreds of years and still have something to offer every time you pick them up. I think that's really just a miracle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what are, I mean, we've we've mentioned a couple with the simple and complex and the not going formulaic. Um, what are some other things that um, that have helped you be a better storyteller? 
Um, <laughs> well, I always tell this, um, tell my students, I'm thinking about teaching a lot because we just started school for the year again. So, uh, and I think through my, you know, through my experiences in the classroom a lot, but I always tell my students that there, there are really no shortcuts to becoming a, a decent writer. You've got to read a lot and you've got to write a lot. Um, so um, establishing a lifetime habit of reading has been really important to me. And to be honest, I struggle with that more than ever. Um, I think all of my best, um, the storehouse of images that I have in my mind and the things that inspire me and motivate me are all from great stories and great books. I'm more distracted now than I ever was before. I used to be able to sit down and read for longer stretches of time. And now I'm, I'm really tempted to look at my phone and just be, you know, be online, be on social media, text somebody and things like that. Um, so it's tougher for me to read right now with the quality of attention that I would like to give books. But I think that's the best, best way to become a better writer is just to be reading all the time. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else about story that you feel like people overlook, underestimate anything like that? Um. You know, I, I, I uh, that's a great question. I was talking with a student yesterday who was asking me if I would allow her to write um, science fiction or fantasy, you know, in our intro to creative writing class. <laughs> and I said, yes, um, I don't have any, uh, I don't want to have a blanket rule that says you can't because those things can be done really, really well, of course. And the example that I give often is Ursula K. Le Guin, one of my all-time favorite writers. Um, who can do fantasy sci-fi stuff um, in a way that's literary. And so again, what I mean by literary is like uh, what might be something that's overlooked, something as simple as character. Um, sometimes kids get big ideas or, or um, anybody can get big ideas about writing. Like, oh, I've got this world that I want to build and here are all the rules of engagement for this other planet that I'm making and this race and this species and all this stuff. Um, I think it was Anne Lamott who said, it's amazing how much uh, the success of a book rests on whether or not the reader cares about the main character. That's it. That's it. You know, and a, a student mentioned yesterday, we were going around asking about like, what are some of your favorite books? And a student mentioned Anne of Green Gables. Um, there's a character that's beloved by generations, you know, and she kind of lives on in the mythology um, in our minds and in our hearts way past the time that you might read the book or see a movie or something like that. So, um, just being able to create a character that resonates with people and that people care about, I think, is the heart and soul of of good uh, storytelling. Mm -hmm. What What have you learned to, uh, about creating characters that people love and care for, and how to do that? Um, I um. Through my experience writing fiction, I think I, I uh, especially um, through, I've been writing um, some young adult fiction. So I have a YA novel with a teenage character in it. What I've discovered is, um, you know, the old advice is that your character has to want something. That's where plot comes from. Basically, your character desires something, tries to get it, um, encounters obstacles while trying to get it. And then every scene is kind of either a win, lose, or draw. Were they able to get the thing they wanted or not? Well, what I discovered is usually the thing they think they want is not actually what's best for them. <laughs> you know, So yeah. the way that I like to put it is um, 
it's not necessarily about your character wants something, do they get it or not? Um, it's about how ultimately does your character reconcile himself, his own flawed self to a flawed world? You know, what is he able to live with? You know, uh, maybe he wants to um, get wealthy, but that's a dream. That's unrealistic. It's not going to happen. What is he able to live with? And who is he after the journey? And I think that's really important. I think of like um, the heroic quest narratives. If you think of like Lord of the Rings, the interesting question isn't necessarily, is Frodo going to get that ring to Mordor in the end or not? The interesting question is, who does Frodo become over the course of that journey and how does it change him? So every quest is really a quest for identity. Man, that's good. Uh, would you mind just speaking more to that about every quest is a quest for identity? Yeah, I, I you know, and again, so using why do those narratives still resonate with so many people? And I mean, there are people who want to deconstruct them and, and find new ways uh, of telling stories. And that's great, too. But those old heroic quest narratives from the Odyssey, um, you know, the, the literature of antiquity all the way through today, you've got the Hunger Games and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and all these things, Star Wars. They really resonate with a lot of people still because I, I think we're still able to insert ourselves into that into that quest you know in other words they the those characters represent us mm -hmm. um they're usually ill-equipped to take on a big journey at the beginning and often they refuse the call to go on that journey but then something happens and they're they're um almost forced into it you know in the hunger games the little sister's name gets called and then suddenly katniss has to say okay this is it i'm going on a quest i know what i need to do and we can identify with that. We want to be sacrificially loving toward people so we can put ourselves in those shoes. Um, and so, but yeah, at the end, again, um, what does it come down to? Who, who has this character become after the quest? If the quest has just simply made them more selfish, um, more cynical, you know, it wouldn't work. I think I think that that they come within every character in those quest narratives comes within an inch of their life at least once, uh, and that teaches them humility, you know. And I think we value that and we like that as readers. Mm -hmm. uh, one of one of the ideas um, that you that you write about in your book is you talk about the power of our name. Would you mind just explain explaining that and the power that is found through through names? Yeah, I, um, I mean, a couple things about that. For in the sort of most literal sense, I was interested in my own uh, lineage and ancestry. Um, where I grew up in New York, in upstate New York, is in the uh, center part of the state, in the Mohawk River Valley. And my grandmother um, was in the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, and she was very proud of that because she was able to trace our lineage back to uh, ancestors who fought um, for the colonies in the Revolutionary War. Well, um, that's not better or worse than anybody else's story. You know, a, a new immigrant family that just came here a couple of weeks ago. That's a good story, too. Um, but I was interested in my own story because we all look to our ancestry, I think, for clues uh, into who we are today. Um, I, I, at least I, that's my hunch on why like ancestry and DNA programs are so popular. 
we're kind of looking in, into them for clues to our own identity. <laughs> Do I have an ancestor who did anything that could give me a clue into who I am and why I am the way that I am? So I was looking at the sort of very literal um, names on the German side, the Bowman side of my family, and then also thinking about names in the bigger sense that when in 2013, when the DSM-5 came out, um, they folded the term Asperger syndrome into the autism spectrum. So now there's a new name available to everybody who uh, had an Asperger's diagnosis or anybody who was diagnosed later than 2013. And that name is autism. What does it mean to take that on and to claim it and say, yeah, I'm autistic? Um, it's a weird thing to claim in a sense. It's a weird name to take on because um, many of us know somebody who's autistic who's nonverbal, um, who um, has cognitive uh, disabilities and things like that. And so you start thinking, well, we're on, we're, we're on the same spectrum together, but I don't know how we're related to one another and things like that. So um, just kind of claiming that name uh, and taking it on and deciding to accept it and, and, and uh, lean into it and dive into it and examine it more deeply has helped me a lot. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of different things you know, in, in the in the <laughs> podcast, um, but I do want to give you a chance. Just if there's anything that we haven't talked about yet, that you know, we're, for anything that we haven't talked about, um, I just want to give you the opportunity to just share kind of what you're thinking of anything that we may have missed. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. We have covered a lot of ground. That's that's uh, pretty. That's pretty great, actually. I gotta say, I really love. Um, being asked about not just the autism stuff, because, you know, with a book like this, it's an issues book, um, so to speak. And so a lot of times people, you know, I'll do a podcast or an interview or something, I'll be focused on autism, which is fine. Uh, I, I want to speak into that as much as I can. But I also love being able to be my fullest self and talk about story, because that's the stuff that I'm obsessed with and I think about all the time. So I do really appreciate that. Um, I'm not sure if we really missed anything or not. Um, I guess I, I would I would say this this book. I hope that um, when people read it and hear about it through um, interviews like this, maybe they pick it up and take a look, or just look online or something. I hope that autistic people hearing this will feel affirmed in who they are and 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 uh, who they were made to be. Um, and and I hope that neurotypical people will their hearts and minds will be open a little bit more to just wanting to understand and make the world a better place for their um, autistic brothers and sisters. Yeah, well, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book and continue to learn from you, Dan. So, where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? Oh, well, wherever you're comfortable. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I use Amazon for many things. Some people don't like it. Um, I will I will say this: there's a bookstore in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, Baker Bookhouse, uh, and you can just go to their website. You just Google Baker Bookhouse and and buy it there. It's a little bit cheaper. So, <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I think coming out of that conversation with Dan, um, there's there's really two uh, insights, and one I, I already talked about already, and so I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about it. But just the idea that there isn't a single uh, autistic point of view and how that translates to so many different people and how and uh, and people groups and realizing that if you want to get to know somebody you have to get to know somebody 
and and ask them questions and understand what their experience is like and ask them um, of just what life is like for them and what are some of the things of life that they love and what are some of the things in life that are maybe challenging for them. But I think it's just the idea of not letting our assumptions or our preconceived notions getting in the way of connecting with people and of building relationship with people. And sometimes, you know, and I'm, I'm, I think we've all been guilty of this from time to time of just realizing, well, I know, you know, this, this type of person. And because I know this type of person, we project that that is true onto all people that fall into that category. And so just realizing that that can be a trap and trying to keep in mind, and that's something that I still, I still have to work at too, is keeping in mind that all people are different than all people are unique and that all people, even though they may have some similarities, that not every assumption or preconceived notion about that person because they fit into a people group is true for them. And I think the, the other big takeaway is, uh, is just how important stories are. And I think that's something that I've just been just learning a lot recently and trying to figure out how to become a better, uh, I don't even know if how to become a better storyteller is the right word, but how to better engage people with stories, because I think it's through stories that we're able to engage in some of the, the most I don't even want to say difficult or challenging questions of life or just the questions of life. You know, stories address at least the the great stories, the good stories, the best stories address questions that we ask ourselves in life. And some of the stories, you know, sometimes maybe they provide a path and sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's a little bit like they provide uh, what a path could look like to this thing. And other times it's... um, it's different than that. And so I think that's something that I'm trying to learn is how to become a better anal- an analyzer of stories. And that's part of uh, the thing that has led to, you know, to do some of these solo episodes, which I'm going to be doing more of and just trying to figure out how to, how to get better at that and how to analyze the themes and the story and the characters and the plot and just all of the things that come with that as well. So that's one of the things that I'm learning from or a couple of things that I'm taking away from this episode. I would love to hear some of the things that, that you're taking away from the episode. And the best way to reach out to me is through my email address, which is this learners corner podcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you anything that you're learning about as well, or some of the things that stood out to you from this episode or any guests or topics that you would love us to um, discuss or, or talk about here on the podcast. As well, I would really appreciate it uh, if you would leave a rating and write a review on whatever podcast player you use. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or follow on whatever podcast uh, player you use. That's the uh, one of the best ways to continue to expand uh, these conversations and make sure that uh, more stuff like this gets in front of people, which I would appreciate a ton as well. I do want to give a couple of quick shout outs and thank yous to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for the podcast. Thanks to Sam Massey, who has created the music for the podcast. Thanks to Daniel Bowman for being on the podcast as well. And thank you, the listener, for being uh, willing to listen to all the way to the very end of the episode. Grateful and very appreciative of that as well. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.